welcome Dr. Elliot West as lecturer and finalist for the Cherry Award for Great Teaching. A preeminent historian of the American West, Dr. West, <laughs> as Heidi mentioned, is alumni distinguished professor of history at the University of Arkansas, where he has taught for 30 years. A native of Dallas, Dr. West earned his BA at the University of Texas at Austin and his MA and PhD degrees at the University of Colorado. That is the pronunciation, Colorado. Uh, he is prolific and widely influential as a scholar. His many books include several pathbreaking studies of the history of childhood and adolescence in the, in the West and in the United States as a whole, as well as an excellent history of saloons on the Rocky Mountain mining frontier. In 1998, he published a landmark volume in Western history, The Contested Plains, Indians, Gold Seekers, and the Rush to Colorado. In this wonderful book, Dr. West dramatized and interpreted the complex cultural clashes that dominated the Central Great Plains and Eastern Rockies during most of the 19th century. I'm happy to say that I have assigned it to undergraduates <laughs> who read it, discuss it, extensively and fully appreciate it as a great work of history. And you can tell I like it a lot because of all the sticky notes. <laughs> Dr. West's most recent book, which promises to make an even uh, larger impact, is titled The Last Indian War, The Nez Perce Story. He is currently on leave this academic year as a research fellow at the Huntington Library in California where he's working on a sweeping interpretive history of the American West from 1850 to 1900. Dr. West has received several major honors for his scholarship, including the Francis Parkman Prize and the Ray Allen Billington Prize. He has also won several awards for his outstanding teaching, including the University of Arkansas Teacher of the Year and College Master Teacher Awards and the Carnegie Foundation's Arkansas Professor of the Year Award. Dr. West has also participated extensively in national programs to bring new approaches and recent research to teaching in the public schools. His lecture today is titled, The West Before Lewis and Clark, Three Lives. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Elliot West. Hear me? This mic loud enough? To, okay, thanks. You get the, well, thank you very much, uh, all of you, for, for coming. Whoa. So, I appreciate it on this muggy afternoon. It's too high. How's that? Hello? Oops. That's not going to work. No, no, no. Speaking? Not working. Okay, well, I'll project. All right. Oh, Gad. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Everybody hear me? <laughs> all right. Uh, well, thank you all for coming. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Thanks to the Cherry Committee. Thanks to Mr. Cherry uh, and Absentia. Uh, I appreciate very much the opportunity to come here. It's certainly a great, a great honor uh, to be part of this uh, extraordinary, uh, this extraordinary program. Uh, Heidi. Uh, suggested that I, that I talk very briefly 
uh, about my approach to teaching, something generally about it, uh, and then got on to go on to give a lecture that, that illustrates uh, how I try to teach back at home. Uh, so I'll try to do that, and I was, I've been trying to think, you know, how I would uh, introduce that first part, what I would say in that first part about teaching. And about, uh, all I could come up with uh, was I really, I really enjoy stories. I enjoy hearing stories. Uh, I enjoy telling stories. Uh, and I, uh, I firmly believe uh, that stories are very important. Uh, they're very important. Uh, they're also very powerful. Uh, when you think about it, all of the world's great religions are essentially sacred stories. Stories have the power to move us in various ways. And the religions, are, certainly they're told through stories, stories of, of exile and defeat and survival and transcendence. Uh, stories that are meant to inspire us uh, to be the very best that we could be. Uh, and all of, the great, um, all of the great monsters of the past, all of the Hitlers and the Stalins and the others, uh, have all used stories, stories of master races and the rest, uh, to inspire people uh, to do the most unimaginably horrible uh, things. Stories are powerful. And the one thing I know best about stories is that we are absolutely compelled uh, to tell them. We just really, it's part of what being human is. It's part of the definition of being human, you know, the impulse uh, to tell stories. We tell stories all the time. We tell stories to our children as fairy tales. We tell, we read stories, the masterpieces of literature. Uh, we, we tell stories at, at family reunions. Maybe the best example, of course, country and western songs. <laughs> Choose your song. <laughs> it's a story, I'll bet you, right? I turned 21 in prison, serving life without parole. No one could steer me straight, but mama tried. Mama tried. Everything's, it's stories. We just can't seem to, can't seem to help ourselves. Um, what I do as a teacher is first try to convince students that history is the biggest story. It's the biggest story of all. History is everything that everybody has ever done everywhere. It's a story that's, of course, always incomplete. It's never told completely. It's often told very badly. Often leaves too many people out, and it's too often, as the word itself says, uh, his story rather than her story but still a story we are absolutely compelled to tell. Uh, and it has its own special power. If all stories have power, this has a particular one. Uh, it has the power to tell us who we are. In a way, that's a pretty good thumbnail definition of the study of history. History is the story that we tell to ourselves to explain to ourselves who we are. And we all love to do it. We're all drawn to it. I try to convince my students that they're going to be drawn to it anyway, so they might as well give up, give in, and enjoy it. But beyond that, what I, what I try to do as a history teacher is to demonstrate, to show to my students that the history, the story, this big story, is always richer then they give it credit for. There's always more to it. There are always more voices to be heard. 
always more to learn, always more points of view. And it follows that the more we cultivate this story, the more we study it, the more we investigate it and try to expand it, then the more we will appreciate that we are all more than we've appreciated before. If story is a story we, if history is a story we tell ourselves to explain who we are, then the more complex and the more wondrous and varied that story is, the more we appreciate the same thing about the human condition, about people. That's what I try to do uh, as a history teacher. And I'd like to try to demonstrate that this afternoon uh, by looking at uh, one of the great American stories, the story of Lewis and Clark. It's, it's one I suspect that all of us are reasonably familiar with, the great expedition, 1804 to 1806, that begins in St. Louis, uh, ascends the Missouri River, goes over the Rocky Mountains, down the Columbia, down to the Pacific Ocean, returns essentially by the same route. It's an expedition that covered more than 4,000 miles, took two and a half years. An extraordinary, an extraordinary story that is documented by one of the great uh, masterpieces of American historical literature, the journals of Lewis and Clark. Uh, it's really an American gem. And it has a special power for us as Americans, I think, because we read into this story of Lewis and Clark something about the American character and about American, the essence of American history. We just celebrated the bicentennial in 2004 of the Lewis and Clark expedition. <laughs> I am convinced, having somehow survived it, uh, that um, the celebration was roughly two and a half times longer than the expedition itself. Uh, it just seemed to go on forever. Uh, but I think part of the reason was that this, this story has such a hold on us as Americans. It's summed up you know, by, this, by this poster uh, from the, uh, from the um, bicentennial. Lewis and Clark there on both sides, looking into the west through that famous arch at St. Louis, a west that is, that is what? There's this pristine wilderness waiting to be seen for the first time by the eyes of outsiders. Open country, virgin land, waiting, waiting to be explored and to be described for the first time. And of course, who will do it? We will do it. This, this is the beginning of the American possession of the west. And if you peel that back just a little bit, you will see that this is based on the assumption that this beginning, that this beginning was really the beginning of history. If this is the event that begins to gain the West, make the West ours, then there's a tendency to see this as the start of Western history. That's what the arch really kind of means in St. Louis. How many of you have been to the arch in St. Louis? Really? wonderful place. It's a fab, beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, but what are the assumptions behind it? First of all, you never see a photograph of the arch looking from St. Louis east. You know? <laughs> I mean, an arch is a gateway arch. Well, a gate, you know, a gate is something you can go through in either way. But everybody knows, of course, that this is a gate that you're only supposed to go through one way. It's an arch you only look through one way from east to west, and that's the implication. You know, this is the perspective to understand the West and Western history. Looking from east to west, from the point of view of English and Anglo-Americans, and 
starting Western history by going through it into this, into this untouched country. As Meriwether Lewis put it in this famous, in this famous entry uh, as they left the Mandan villages after wintering in North Dakota in April of, 18, um, of 1805. Uh, he said, we are now entering country where the foot of civilized man has never trod. Open country. Was that true? Was that, in fact, the case? What I'd like to do is what I try to do in all of my classes, and that is to complicate the story, to complicate it creatively for you. And what I want to do is to ask you to rethink that part of America that you see, that you just saw on the map of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and, and get the expedition out of there. It hasn't come yet. And look at this part of the country a little freshly. Look at this part of the country now as a place that, where history was not yet begun, where, where his, it was not a case of where history had not yet started in 1804. Look at this instead as a place where, a place deep in history by that time. A place where Lewis and Clark were stepping into a swirl of historical changes. And I'd like to suggest that to you, to complicate that old story to you uh, through the lives of three individuals. It's always kind of helpful, you know, to look at big events and big forces through the lives of persons. Take one life, follow that life, try to get a sense of what was going on through those lives. So I'd like to look at these three people in sequence to give you a sense of some of the things that were going on, some of the history that was there before Lewis and Clark started on that, uh, that remarkable journey. Here's the first one. Oh, each of these people um, is an ordinary person in the context of their times. Uh, we don't have a single image of either three. We don't know what they look like, really. One of them, we don't even know his name. But in a way, that is even more revealing. So what we have here is just sort of three ordinary folks living out their lives in this land long before Lewis and Clark show up. The first one, Jean L'Archevêque. Jean L'Archevêque, as you might suspect, born in France, 17, uh, 1772. At the age of 12, L'Archevêque enlisted in an expedition led by one of the most famous uh, men of his era, Robert Cavalier Sieur de La Salle the great explorer of the 17th century. LaSalle is, is best known uh, as the man who first <clears throat> traced the route of the Mississippi River all the way down to its mouth. This was in 17, uh, 1782. Now, by international law at the time, by doing that, he was laying claim for his nation of, of France under Louis XIV uh, to the entire watershed of the Mississippi River. So he's laying claim for France for the watershed between all of the land, between the crest of the Appalachians on the east to the crest of the, continent, to the continental divide, the crest of the Rocky Mountains uh, on the west. Uh, an incredible, an incredible amount of land. More than 120 years later, the western part of that watershed would be sold to the United States as the Louisiana Purchase, and Lewis and Clark would, would explore it. But that's much later. Here the claim was first made, and this was a huge success. And the French hoped to follow up on this by sending LaSalle out two years later in 1784 to follow up on this success by establishing a post 
at the mouth of the Mississippi. Unfortunately, LaSalle couldn't find the mouth of the Mississippi, which always leads me to wonder uh, just how much of an explorer he really was. Uh, in any case, well, they're, they're, it's more complicated than that, but, he, but he, he ended up instead landing and building a post near um, in Matagorda Bay in Texas, down on the Texas coast, right there, right there. Now, maybe he was lost, maybe he was a bad explorer, but there are historians who suspect that maybe something else was going on here. And here's the key to understanding, to getting a sense of, of, of one of the forces that I'm talking, I'm talking about here. There's all along been the opinion that LaSalle never intended to stop at the Mississippi, that he always intended to settle here because France was in competition with the Spanish to the south and to the west. And it may well be that he was trying to push into this area, be part of this French push out of the Mississippi Valley, southward down toward the Rio Grande, to expand the, uh, expand the role of the French. Well, who knows? We don't know. What we do know is this. This expedition was an absolute disaster, unlike the first one. Uh, they lost all of their ships. Uh, they, they built a, a fort called Fort St. Louis. Uh, they ran afoul of the Indians, the Karankawas, on the coast. Uh, they suffered diseases, which killed um, scores of these potential settlers. Um, they started to run out of food. Finally, LaSalle decided that the best chance, the only chance that they had, was to take a group of, of men, they were down to about um, a bit more than 20 overall, and to lead them overland to Arkansas where there was a French post, and they set out, set out to do that. They were gone about a week or so when some of his men, fed up with their commander, murdered LaSalle. And they murdered him with the direct help and involvement of Jean Marchevec, now about 15. Marchevec was described by one history I found as a young man of, and I quote, uh, precocious depravity. I kind of like that. <laughs> uh, anyway, there's this kid, you know, 15-year-old kid, you know, to, uh, <laughs> today being the ninth grade. Um, and he's the one who lures LaSalle to his, uh, to his murder. <clears throat> some of the others went on, and some of them made it all the way to Arkansas and up to the Illinois. Um, Marchefec decided to turn around, and he went back with a few others to live at the post and to live with those Indians. Um, but things were going very, very badly. He started living in the Caddo's. Sort of really going native. And um, finally, in desperation to get out of there, Marchevec wrote a letter to the Spanish who had heard about the French up there and were, uh, and were sending expeditions out periodically to try to find them. They couldn't find them. So he wrote them a letter and said, I'm here. Here we are. Come arrest me. <coughs> uh, which they did. They. Um, Under a man named De Leon, the excuse me, uh, the Spanish came up, <clears throat> arrested him and one other, saved them really. Um, they first thought they were Indians. They were dressed in Indian clothes. They were covered with tattoos, in the uh, in the fashion of the Caracolas. Uh, but they explained who they were. They took them down to Mexico City. Uh, but they 
Nobody can figure out what to do with them. What do you do with these guys? You don't want to kill them. That might cause a problem. Uh, so they sent them to Spain, where they sat in jail for 30 months, and the Spanish couldn't figure out what to do with them. So the Spanish finally said, if you will, if you will pledge yourself as Spanish citizens, you can go back. You can't go to France, but you can go back to America. So, okay. So they went back to Mexico, Mexico City. They became soldiers, he and his friend. And in 1794, 1760, I'm sorry, 1694, they went to Santa Fe. This was part of the, what's called the Reconquista. After the Spanish were driven out of northern New Mexico in 1792, they went back and recaptured it. Uh, two years later, Larchvec comes back as a soldier, although he's now Juan Archbecki <laughs> in the documents. Um, there in Santa Fe, uh, he prospered. Prospered. He married. Uh, he became a merchant and a trader. He became a kind of a guide. He had experience as sort of bridging that gap between Europeans and Indians. So he would go with the Spanish out onto the plains to help them deal with Indians. Uh, he became uh, quite um, wealthy by those standards, and he became quite increasingly prominent. And this went on for years. In 1719, his first wife had died. In 1719, Archbecky won, uh, remarried, and this time he married uh, the daughter of the alcalde. The alcalde is the mayor. So this guy who's, you know, who comes through the Caracas as a you know, tattooed Frenchman <laughs> ends up marrying the mayor's daughter in Santa Fe. And the marriage, the, uh, the wedding attended by the, uh, by, the, by the governor. So, in other words, he has reached about as high as he can go. Uh, he has really made it. But things were not all well because the French by that point had heard, I'm sorry, the Spanish at that point had heard that the French were making another move. Now they were moving against Spanish territory again, but this time out onto the plains. The word came that they were giving guns to the Plains Indians, very, very bad thing to do, and that these Indians were drifting into the, into the French orbit. So in 1719, the year of his marriage, uh, they began planning this expedition to go up into the Great Plains under a man named Pedro de Villasur, to make contact with those Plains Indians and to, uh, and to bring them back into the Spanish orbit. And the obvious person to go along with them was Juan Archbecki, who spoke French, of course, uh, and who also could deal, could deal with Indians. So he did, 1720. The Villa Sewer expedition marches across the Great Plains out of Santa Fe, several score soldiers with them, they make it all the way into what is today Nebraska, Nebraska, up in eastern Nebraska, where they finally make contact with the Pawnee people, the Pawnees. Now, they had been allies of the French, but now they had drifted, uh, of, the, of the Spanish, but now they had drifted to the French. And in fact, they discovered right away that they had French arms and the fact they were probably Frenchmen in the village. Very bad news. And so they went to camp that night wondering what to do. And they found out the next morning uh, when the Pawnees attacked them in force and killed everybody. <laughs> 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 
almost everybody. A few of them managed to lift their way back uh, to Santa Fe. But among the dead were Pedro de Venezuela and Jean Larchbecque, one Larchbecki. What an odyssey that had been from France as a 12-year-old uh, to, uh, to the Texas coast, to Mexico City, uh, to Spain, back to Mexico, to Santa Fe, uh, to Nebraska. Finally, to die at the indirect hands of his original countrymen a long time later. Uh, I think it must have been also a kind of an internal odyssey. You have to wonder, you know, looking at this, at this story, how did this guy think of himself? Was he Jean or Juan? Was he Caracua or Spanish or French? So what we see in this story at the outset is, first of all, uh, long, long before Lewis and Clark, there was this vigorous competition going on in the West between other imperial powers, stretching out over decades. But just as much, let me suggest to you, just as much what we see here is a theme throughout Western history, and that is the, the mingling together of identities, the muddying and the messying of identities. That's so much a part of the Western and the American story. Jean Juan strikes me as a, one of the best examples of that I can think of. Well, the second story, the second person, uh, that story begins only four years later. The story of an Osage man, a member of the Osage people who lived in what is today uh, western, um, western Missouri. 1724, this man, we don't know what he looks like, perhaps like that. He lived right around here. He lived probably in a village like this. And in 1724, this village and this man were visited by this guy, Etienne Bourgmont, a Frenchman coming up from New Orleans who was sent by the French on orders from Paris to follow up on this crushing of the Spanish ambition in 1720, to follow up on that and to extend the French influence out onto the plains, uh, to try to win over some of the tribes that were still with the Spanish, like the Plains Apaches, but also to, to submit and to hold on to the allegiance and the friendship of people like the Osages, who were already in the orbit uh, of the French and the Pawnees. Now, why were they so concerned about this? What was behind this? What we see here is another important force uh, that was abroad in the West long before Lewis and Clark, and this was economic. The West was a crucial part of what was arguably the biggest business in the Atlantic world, a business that stretched all the way from all the way from far western Russia all the way to the Pacific Northwest. And the key character in this and the key figure in this particular part of the story, very important in Western history at this time, was this guy, <laughs> beavers. What they were after were beaver pelts, which were at the time one of the most valuable commodities on the world market for beaver hats and for other products. 
The beavers were so valuable, they had been long trapped out in Eastern Europe for the most part. They were now being trapped out in the Eastern woodlands. And so the French were always looking westward. But if you're going to trap beaver, if you're going to take advantage of that market, you've got to have the alliance of the Indians. So that's what Morgmont was concerned with. That's what the French were especially up to at this point. So, in doing that, the key figures they had to deal with were the Osages, who were the most powerful group militarily in that part of the West, and who also were the leading traders with the French in that part. So these were important figures, and they really had to schmooze with these guys <laughs> to make sure that they, were, that they remained their friends, remained part of this economic orbit. And so to, to really seal the deal, Bourgmont invited an Osage man and the chiefs of five other groups, plus one woman, described as a Missouri Indian princess, to come back with him for a visit. And they said, sure, sounds fun. So, in 1724, they went down the Missouri River, down the Mississippi River, to New Orleans. Then they got on a ship, and they went across the Atlantic to Le Havre. Then they got on a coach and drove overland to Paris, where they spent several months uh, in Paris, enjoying, <laughs> enjoying the, uh, the pleasures of, um, you know, arguably the most sophisticated uh, city in the Western world during those years. They had a great time. We've got some accounts that they later gave about what they, what they did, uh, about what, was, what life was like. Uh, they went to the Paris Opera, enjoyed that a good deal. They described it later as a large lodge filled with sorcerers. <laughs> they said they saw tiny men and women dancing and singing and performing. What this probably was, with the famous puppet shows at the uh, Pont Neuf, uh, the bridge going across, going across the Seine. Um, they demonstrated, they met Louis XV, 15 years old at the time, who entertained them on several occasions. They demonstrated their hunting skills at the Royal Woods, at the Bois de Ballon, uh, riding bareback and nude, killing large numbers of the Royal Peacocks. <laughs> uh, very impressive to the French. Uh, they, they, they visited the uh, Chateau de Fontainebleau, uh, where they were uh, feted uh, by the French court, and where they met, uh, with, the, uh, met with the young king several times. Uh, they uh, had a grand time. They visited in halls like this. They were very impressed. They went back and told uh, there are people that there were so many people, so many people in this country said there were, there were more than there are leaves on the trees. They were, of course, not believed. Uh, their compatriots back home thought that they had been bewitched. That could not possibly be true. But they said, these are very interesting people. They some very interesting things. And so we need to pay attention to them. They're good friends, good friends to have. Now, not all is good, they said. There are some bad things in France. The worst of all, they said, the thing that they were really had contempt for, were some of the French men, whom they called half-men, because they were so effeminate. <laughs> they minced like women, they said, uh, and they wore their hair curled in these wigs. They said, you know, who are these people? 
you know. <laughs> and besides, they said, and I have no idea what this means. Besides, they said, these guys smell like alligators. I don't know what that means, but uh, having never smelled an alligator up close, at least. Um, anyway, but apart from little things like that, they, um, they were greatly impressed. And they were sent back home <coughs> with Borgmon, who then took them back up to their village, who left them there. 1725, one of them had died on the voyage. Incredible trip. What a trip. A journey not nearly as long as Jean Lars Vecht's, uh, but um, in its way, in its way as grand uh, and, as, um, and as complex with all sorts, of, all sorts of messy lessons to it as well. Were these men the same after they came back home? Could they have possibly seen their own world or themselves in the same way uh, after that experience? I don't know. Now, when was this? 1725. We're now still 80 years away from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Where are Lewis and Clark's people at this time? Go back east to Virginia, their home. Eight, 1716, the governor of Virginia was a man named Alexander Spotswood, and he formed a club for exploring. He called, they call themselves the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe, <laughs> and they went galloping off into the west to explore, to penetrate deep, deep into the American continent. There they would explore and open up new lands for English settlement. And the one that took them the farthest, they came finally to this magnificent valley uh, where they stopped um, and camped for a while, um, came back home uh, to describe uh, this, the wonders you know, of the deep, dark interior of America. Where were they? They were in the Shenandoah Valley, about two hours today south of Washington, D.C. To the English, that was the interior. You know, so, so I have this image of a, a, there's a night, you know, an evening. It's back in, we're back in, uh, in Williamsburg. And Governor Spotswood is sitting around with his friends, and they're sipping port. And he's regaling him with his adventures and the great dangers he faced into this, as he, in this great journey into the interior to the Shenandoah Valley. And at the same moment, I have this image, the same moment out in, in eastern Kansas, there are Indians sitting around a campfire uh, reminiscing about Parisian evenings. You know, <laughs> ah, the women, the wives, that, that. There's a lot going on out there. A lot going on out there. There's a wonderful coda to this story. Before they left, they had one last visit with Louis XV, and he gave each of the survivors, including the woman, a beautiful diamond-encrusted repeater watch. Very, very valuable at that time. It's a final gift for them to take back, uh, which they did. Well, 1725. 1752, a Frenchman was visiting in the Illinois country. The woman, it turns out, married a Frenchman who was along on the trip, a trader. And when they got back to America, they made their way up eventually to Illinois. And this Frenchman, 1752, what's that, 27 years later, uh, runs across her 
and writes in his journal. He said, I met this amazing old lady. He said, she had all these stories. You get the feeling he was a little incredulous. <laughs> said, and she had this incredible watch, this amazing watch. I said, so I asked her, where did you get this watch? He says, you know what she told me? She told me she got it from the king of France. <laughs> right? <laughs> you must take me for a, you know, a, a complete lunatic. You know? but, <laughs> but anyway, it was, it, was, it was quite a watch. I have to admit that. Well, that was 1752. The third story, if the first one starts on the Texas coast with Jean Larchbeck, the second one in far western Missouri, eastern Kansas, the Osage Man, the third one's back over here in New Mexico, north of Santa Fe. And if that Frenchman who saw the diamond watch had made his way down to Santa Fe, he, would, he might have met a 13-year-old girl, Maria Rosa Villalpando. Her story, in fact, links back to the first one. In 1794, the same year that uh, Juan Archbecki made his way up to Santa Fe out of Mexico City, another soldier came along. They, they had to have known each other. They had to have known each other. This man's name uh, was also Juan. It was Juan de la Villa del Pando. That is, John of the House of Pando. He settled in Santa Fe, did well. He had a son named Pablo. And now this was contracted to Pablo del Pando. And Pablo went up north out of Santa Fe, up to the area of what is today Taos. And he joined a collection of ranching families there. And there he married. There he had several children, including, probably around 1739, Maria Rosa. Well, they lived in a large walled compound with four great towers with bristling with arms. Why? This was outside of the town of Taos. Why were they so concerned about that? It was because of Comanches. Comanches. Comanches who lived mostly to the east of there, but who came to trade in New Mexico, but also to raid. The Comanches, the most powerful people of that region. And here is another important force to understand about what's going on here, because what the Comanches represented was one of the great revolutions of the colonial period. The revolution of the horse. The Spanish brought horses with them, and after 1680, these horses and the horse culture spread throughout the West, and this resulted in a burst of affluence and power for these uh, Indian peoples across the West, all the way up to the Pacific Coast. None of them were more powerful than the Comanches. A recent brilliant book uh, called The Comanche Empire argues that the Comanches really established an empire not unlike European empires, one that stretched from the Arkansas River in, in, in Arkansas, in Oklahoma, and in uh, Kansas, all the way down deep into Mexico, that they were an imperial power during this period uh, and after. That's why they had those walls, and that's why they had those towers, but it didn't do them any good because in 1760, 
two years after Maria Rosa had married a man named Juan Jaques, and a year after she had born a son, Jose, the Comanches attacked. 3,000 Comanches attacked this outpost. Inside were 14 men. They held out for a while, but the Comanches overwhelmed them. They killed all the men. They killed many of the women. But they took 56 women and children as captives, including Maria Rosa. Took them as captives off to the east. This is something they quite often did. Her husband was killed. Her son, Jose, survived, but was left behind. So she's separated from her son, taken into Comanche captivity. We don't really know what happened over the next few years. It could not have been pretty. We know what usually happens to women captives among the Comanches. It's not good. The next time she shows up in the record, she's in Nebraska. The Comanches had sold her to the Pawnees, same people that killed Villasur in Larchbeck, maybe the same village. We're not quite sure where she was, but it could quite well have been uh, this, same, uh, this same place. Now, the Pawnees were a remarkable, a remarkable people. They were a Catawan-speaking people, part of the Catawan group. Uh, as you can see here, they lived in permanent earth lodges. Uh, they were quite uh, numerous. They were gardeners. That's why they needed a lot of women, so they bought them from people like the Comanches. They were related to other Catawan groups in Texas, including the ones around here, the Waco Indians, connected to the uh, Tonkawas and the Tawakanis, uh, were Catawan-speaking. So these Pawnees that Maria Rosa were, was living with uh, were sort of distant cousins to the Indians who were living around here. She lived there for several years. She bore a son by a Pawnee man, who later was named Antoine. And she became immersed, uh, immersed in that culture. And it was quite a culture. It was quite a culture. Here's another lesson of this, the extraordinary range, range of cultural life across the West, long, long, long before, before Lewis and Clark. Pawnees had this incredible, extraordinary cosmology, the way they thought of existence, the way they thought of the world. There's been a, a Pawnee sacred site that's been found and excavated. And what the archaeologists found, it's a lodge smaller than that one, but basically looks like that one. This lodge had in it four posts that were exactly, exactly placed at the semi-cardinal points of the compass. And those are the sacred directions for the Pawnees. This earth lodge had a door situated so that the sun shone through that door only once a year. It dawned on the summer solstice. At dawn of June 21st, whatever, the sun would shine through this door and it would shine its rays to the back of the lodge on an altar. An altar. And when they dug in the altar, they found the bones and the feathers of woodpeckers and owls in contemporary Pawnee culture. Those were sacred animals. Sacred animals. The Pawnees believed then, believe now. 
that woodpeckers and owls are messengers, messengers to sacred figures in the sky, and those sacred figures are stars. They're messengers to the stars. The Pawnees believe that the stars created the world and everything in it, and they created it. My favorite part. The stars created the world, all of us, by singing. The stars sang the world into existence. All of us are. Star song. What a, what a great idea. <laughs> I love that. Uh, anyway, she became immersed in that particular, that particular culture, became part of that, bore a son. And then her life changed again. 1764, and she was probably just showing up there at the village, this man, Pierre Leclerc, uh, founded the city of St. Louis, what would become the city of St. Louis. It was established at the junction of the, um, at the, junction of the Missouri and the Mississippi, established as an embarkation point, embarkation point for his people to go out onto the plains and conduct the fur trade. Perfectly positioned. One of the young men who was with him and one of the official founders of St. Louis was a man identified only as Jean Salet. Turns out later his name was probably Ladouille, but this was what he was called, Jean Salet. Anybody knows enough French in here to translate that? S-A-L-E with an accent over the E. It translates roughly as Dirty John, <laughs> which may be the best name for a mountain man and a trapper and a trader that I've ever, I've ever heard. Uh, so Dirty John, 23, is part of the founding of St. Louis. And Leclerc sends him out onto the plains to make contact with the Indians there, including the Pawnees. So Jean Salet goes to this village, strikes up a relationship with Maria Rosa. She has a child by him, Lambert. This goes on until 1770. And in 1770, in 1770, uh, Jean finally decides to make an honest woman of her, takes her and her children, some of them theirs, some of them hers, to St. Louis. And there he married her in the cathedral. And there they, oh, she's now Marie Rose, Maria Rosa, Marie Rose. And there they set up housekeeping on the Rue de Grange, uh, which was appropriately uh, the westernmost street in this young town, this village of St. Louis, 1770. Marie Rose would stay in St. Louis the rest of her life. She would have more children, a son, Pierre, who died, twin girls, one of them would die, and she would live there with the rest of her children as they grew up and started their own families. Jean Salet, sometime in the 1790s, went back to France. We don't know why. Never came back. But she remained and remained kind of a matriarch of St. Louis. Well-established, well-respected, fairly wealthy. She was there. She was there in 1803, at the age of 64, when the United States acquired the Louisiana Territory. She was there in 1820, age 81, when Missouri became a state. And she was there until she died 
in 1830 at the age of 91. 70, what would that be? 70 years, 70 years after being captured by Comanches in Taos. Quite a story, quite a story. It's a wonderful coda to this story as well. In 1803, who should show up in St. Louis? I don't know if it happened this way, but I imagine knocking on her door. But, any guesses? Jose! <laughs> Jose, her son, born 1759. Now, uh, what, 54, 44? Nine children of his own his own family. He had heard somehow that, that his mother had survived and was living over here in St. Louis. And I suspect he wondered, I, I wonder if she has money. She, <laughs> he heard she was uh, well off, you know, doing well over there. So Jose undertakes this extraordinary trip. Now this is still a deal. 1803, crossing the southern plains, that's still Comanche territory. You know, to cross from Santa Fe from northern New Mexico over to St. Louis is nothing to sniff at. So this was quite an undertaking, which he, which he did, which he did. So, you know, it's a knock on the door. She opens up, you know, Mom, don't you recognize me? You know, it's Joe. It's, uh, so uh, he comes there. We don't know, of course, the details of what happened, except for a fascinating document uh, that's there that I found in the Missouri Historical Society. Um, that's why I suspect that he was wondering about her, about her estate. Uh, because in this document, he agrees to surrender all claim to her estate uh, in exchange for 200 pesos, which today would get you, you know, a Coca-Cola. Uh, uh, back then was a considerable amount. So, you know, they probably dickered a bit and uh, agreed to settle up, agreed to settle up here. Uh, any case, Jose remained in St. Louis for, we know, uh, for a period of months. All the, um, the implication is that this was a friendly reunion. They sort of caught up with each other. But what does that mean? If he arrives in the summer of 1803 and he remained for several months, that means that Jose was in St. Louis when Lewis and Clark came through, as they come through, uh, on their way out to this journey up the Missouri, into that pristine wilderness, into that country where no civilized foot has ever trod, into that country where, as we all know oh so well, nothing whatsoever of significance uh, had ever happened. <laughs> well, what I'm hoping to do this afternoon is to take this one American story and to complicate it for you in a way that will encourage you, you know, to, to complicate the rest of it. Encourage you to, to see that um, at least the American story, the part that I teach, you know, cannot possibly be understood from one perspective. How can we imagine that we can understand America understand Americans from the point of view of one set of people. 
How can we possibly imagine understanding this place in any, any other way except, except through this extraordinary, extraordinary range of human experiences and perspectives and point of views and as much as anything else, identities. How can we possibly think of American as one thing once we begin to listen to stories, to stories like this? If history is the story that we tell ourselves, to explain to ourselves who we are, these stories explain to us, tell us that we are so much more, so much more than we have um, imagined before, I think. I think we need to, we need to learn to, to think more like, I like to think that uh, Marty Rose was thinking uh, in, her last, in her last years. I fantasize sometimes. You know, I <laughs> sit around, I fantasize. What, what was she thinking? What does she remember? What does she remember? Let's say she's 88, right? It's 1828. <coughs> she goes out for a walk one night in St. Louis. It's one of those wonderful nights in the winter. You know, it's, it's cold and crisp, cloudless, moonless. Uh, she walks around. You know, what does she think? She remembers. What does she remember? What language does she think in? Does she, does she think in Spanish or in Comanche or French, English? Does she think of her, her, her husband, you know, long dead? Does she think of Dirty John, somewhere in France, dead probably? Uh, does she think of, um, of her children? When she looks up at the stars, you know, when she, maybe I picture her looking up at the stars, you know, maybe hearing an owl. You know, what does she think? Does she think like a Pawnee? Does she think she's maybe hearing the gods? What I think she would tell us is that if, in fact, as the Pawnees believed. We are all history. If history is all great star song, uh, that that song is always, uh, always far uh, grander than we will ever know. But the fun, of course, is trying to find out about it as much as we can. Thank you very much. I was told that uh, I'd be happy to answer questions. We have about maybe two minutes before the, uh, the time is up, <laughs> if anyone has any, uh, has any questions on this. Yes, sir. They had no clue. The United States bought the Louisiana Purchase, and we had no idea what we had bought in those terms. In fact, one of the most important uh, purposes of Lewis and Clark was to find the northernmost tributary of the Missouri River because the purchase was defined roughly by the western watershed of the Missouri. So the, the point was, the trick was, you find the northernmost water flowing into it and the southernmost, and those are at least on the northern and southern boundaries. The western boundaries is the Rocky Mountains, although we had no idea where they were. Thomas Jefferson thought there was a mountain of 20,000 feet out there made out of pure salt, for example. That's how much he knew. Uh, so uh, we really didn't know. And in fact, it would not be until much later that those boundaries were finally defined. They also argued about them. 
Jefferson claimed that the southern boundary of the Louisiana Purchase was the Rio Grande. He wanted Texas. <laughs> the Spanish said, excuse me? <laughs> they, said, they said, how can you claim that? And you know how he claimed it? He said, LaSalle. We got this from the French. The French pushed all the way down there. That's what he was trying to do. The French pushed all the way down there toward, uh, toward the Rio Grande. And so that's where he wanted to go. That's where he would have gone if he could. Therefore, it's ours. This is a lawyer talking. <laughs> uh, well, that didn't, that didn't float. Uh, the Spanish came back and said, oh, oh yeah? It's not the Rio Grande. It's the Missouri. Woo! So it's a, eventually, of course, it fell in between. It's the Red River, the northern boundary of part of Texas that becomes the, basically the southernmost uh, part of the purchase. Yeah. But at, the point, at that point, they, they didn't know. Any other questions? It's 4.30. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>